0: Hello everyone and welcome to Unorthodoxy. I'm Duncan and I've got some good news. We've made it to part four, which also happens to be the last episode in our series on the concept of sin. Many of you will be relieved to hear this, although by the end of this some of you may think that I have not said enough, which is probably true. If our human propensity to muck things up always finds a way to, well, muck things up, The good news is going to be that sin doesn't get to have the last word, and at least some of our job will be to open ourselves up to whatever it is that contradicts the tyranny of this inward state of decay. So far, we've covered three aspects of sin, namely the fact that sin can be understood as anti-order, anti-nature, and anti-reason. So now we're going to turn to the last way of understanding sin – which is that sin is anti-God. In talking about this, I realized that I might be stepping on a few atheistic toes, so I might as well be clear that the concept of sin only makes complete sense in a theistic context. Sin works against order, nature, and reason, but it is this last meaning of sin that really makes sin, sin. Sin is, by definition, against God. I'm talking about a posture towards being, towards existence that sees any suggestion or hint of God's reality as that which transforms our own perception of reality as a violation of life and reason. Anti-theism can be a stance of just about anyone, whether atheist or theist. It's about something within us that opposes the ultimate in one way or another. We are talking here about rebellion against the highest good, the ground of and reason for being, the truly transcendent origin of being itself, who is not a being, but is outside of being. In a way, you could even say that God is not the supernatural, but is that which is even beyond the supernatural, transcending all distinctions between is and is not, and escaping our ability to describe in language. We know this God apophatically, As that which transcends our very capacity for knowing anything, and we can thus understand God only by means of analogy rather than by means of any sort of positive language. I'm sure this doesn't quite clear things up, and in a way it's not meant to. It's meant to remind us that when God is opposed by sin, what is opposed is the one who is ultimately true, and yet also ultimately mysterious. Sin opposes the one in whom, to quote St. Paul's quotation, all things live and move and have their being. Which is to say, and this is the crucial point, sin opposes the only one in whom all things can find their integration and completion. By being anti-God, sin is anti-integration. There are two forms that this anti-integrational anti-Godness can take, and they are, at least at first, seemingly incongruent with each other, The first form that it takes is when people think that anything is permitted. The second form that it takes is that nothing is permitted. So the first form is probably the most quickly assumed and most intuitive. If there is no God, everything is permitted. Please hear me out on this though, because I might not be saying what you think I'm saying. What I am saying is that because sin involves a rejection of God and even opposes God, The ultimate unifying structure upon which moral coherence rests, ceases to be relevant to the sin-possessed individual, at least from a subjective perspective. Moral order, in other words, is no longer objective because it is merely the emergent result that emanates from within the general turbulence and changeableness of contingent being. Moral order can only really be, from this highly subjectivist perspective, a construct or social contract something invented and collectively agreed upon, but which is considered, or from this perspective, to have no truly ultimate reality. Or, otherwise, morality is merely the result of a biological response like disgust, rather than something that is connected to the transcendent affirmation of the goodness of being. So, of course, there are reasons why the anti-theist might still live an incredibly, so to speak, moral life, and as we'll get to, even a hyper-moralistic life. However, the anti-theist can, if she wants, do whatever she wants without violating any genuine moral law. You might say that this is the central reason for the general idiom, what's right for you may not be right for me. Morality is, in the wake of the so-called death of God, not a matter of fact, but a matter of taste. And one thing about tastes is that they clash, if you and your friends all agree on a particular moral standard, then the standard you agree upon is the standard that says that morality is what we all happen to agree upon. You could say, as Umberto Eco does, that morality begins in our encounter with the other, in which case the other is the standard upon which our morality is based. And in which case morality depends very much on which other we happen to be encountering, and what they happen to prefer. In the aftermath of the global village, Marshall McLuhan's idea, with increasing clashes between different cultures and subcultures, harmony of any kind becomes incredibly difficult, if not impossible to achieve, and this is because there can be no agreed-upon ground for that harmony in a world of mere tastes and preferences. I am not saying at least not in any kind of obvious way that if God were reinstated as king in our world, all moral gray zones must automatically disappear. For such a thing to happen, goodness would become less a matter of participation than a matter of robotic conformity. And since I have decidedly Thomist inclinations, my assumption is that goodness is less about rule keeping than it is about dialogical communion, with the dynamic agape that is the Trinitarian God. So what I am saying is this, when there is not even a vague sense of some source of goodness, some genuine origin, everything becomes a moral gray zone and everyone caught in that gray zone is forced to resort to what Alistair MacIntyre refers to as emotivist ethics, which even at its best has no foundation. The question of right and wrong is decided mostly on the basis of what people feel is right and wrong. It becomes a matter of what they like or dislike in in some sort of automatic way. And while feelings can be profound signals that indicate towards the good, they are manipulable in a way that could very well distort our perspectives on goodness or even on badness. Nietzsche realized, better than most, that if you abolish God, you are not really left with any good reasons for clinging to Christian morality. This doesn't mean that people who abandon hope or faith in God aren't moral, but rather that their reasons for being moral don't offer much of a solid grounding for their moral actions. You also get a sense of the significance of Nietzsche's claim when you look at something called moral error theory which suggests in keeping with this death of God hypothesis that without God, it is quite rational in the sense of at least being consistent with its own axioms to conclude that morality should have no hold on us. Morality is an illusion. If there is no moral lawgiver, moral law is little more than a collective hallucination. St. Augustine puts it this way, we get to turn to God this is what he calls conversion, or towards the body, this is what he calls reversion. We get to move towards what is higher, beyond ourselves, towards the origin of unity, peace, goodness, truth, and so on. Or we get to move towards what is provisional, what is base, limited, insufficient, and fundamentally not ultimate. No matter how you look at it, the result of turning against God must be a turn towards what is fundamentally not self-grounding and therefore horribly prone to disintegrating. But of course, we are made to yearn for integration. So with the abolishment of God as absolute goodness, people will try to seek their security in some counterfeit double of God that might act as a substitute for God's absoluteness. If the true absolute is out of the way, our inbuilt desire to worship takes over and false absolutes begin to hold sway for us. Which is to say that instead of aiming for God, the aim becomes anything but God. As Chesterton says, the most likely thing to happen when God is abolished is that the government becomes God. Um, And I think we see a lot of this in our world today. Politics has become the new religious um, ideology. And taken symbolically, this means that what is most likely to arise in the wake of the so called death of God is not an absence of morality, but the surprising proliferation of moralities and rules and laws and institutions and all kinds of other things. Nietzsche foresaw this very clearly too, and he feared it that with God dead, the result will not be moral chaos, suggested by the idea that now everything is permitted but rather an escalating moralism. If God is dead, nothing is permitted. So if you thought that I was claiming that sin's anti-godness means that atheists would be to be consistent with their beliefs, resort to sheer immoralism, you were wrong. I've heard Christian apologists claim that this would be the case, and honestly, I don't think it's a very good argument. I think Lacan and Zizek, who follow Nietzsche on this point, are right to claim that the greatest struggle for the atheist is not against immoralism, but against moralism, although some of the rules included in this moralism might, to the theist, appear to be immoral. The same applies for religious fundamentalists, who are often, although by no means always, atheists by another name. Simply because they have faith in the things of God, Bibles, moral norms, the cultural status quo and such, but not in the transcendent God. This is idolatry. It's about seizing hold of the relative and rendering it absolute, which is one of the things that sin produces. Remember that any good thing can be usurped by the human propensity to muck things up. Christianity has spawned its own ideologies too, and they are, like any ideology, merely collapsed and highly simplistic forms of a larger philosophical structure rooted in what is ultimate. So I want to stress here that this anti-godness of sin is as much of a problem for religious folks as it is for atheists. Sin's anti-godness is not reserved for secularists, but is a problem every human being faces. It results in us making absolute mountains out of relative molehills. It has us bowing before gods that have no intention of being gracious or merciful or loving, gods like ideological commitments to the boss at work or the bureaucracy or your creative drives and so on. And it's also about the various approved ways of speaking and acting that go with those ideological commitments, all of which have so many internal contradictions that there's just no way that you could even begin To hope to live out an integrated existence. I think of Hannah Arendt's description of the role of bureaucracy in perpetuating the evil of Nazism and the use of law in various forms of communism to do the same. Evil is often banal. People follow rules because that's all they have. God is abolished, so nothing is permitted. But when God is not opposed, it becomes possible to serve the good without serving the rule. I think this is at least part of the meaning of the notion of grace talked about at length by people like St. Paul and Martin Luther, at least in Martin Luther's interpretation of Paul. Twice that I can think of in the Old Testament, one in the book of Exodus, in the story of the midwives who served Pharaoh, and once in the book of Joshua, in the story of Rahab. Lies are commended by God because they serve a higher truth and a higher good. But the moral of the story is not be immoral, clearly, or that we should tell lies. The moral of the story is that when we have a genuine sense of what is the highest good, lesser goods get put in their right place. They become lesser goods. When we know what the highest good is, everything is already reconciled. I know it's a dangerous thing for me to even mention the example of the lying midwives and Rahab because there's something in all of us that might immediately start looking for loopholes in the moral order. So let me say just for the sake of clarity that the part of us that's looking for loopholes like this is still very much sin. I mentioned serving the good without serving the rule, but it's worth noting that most good rules and laws are there to point us towards the good. The good is that which transcends the rule, but it is helpful to have the rule to point us in the right direction. So in other words, the rules are there to help us to participate in the good in the best possible way. Before I get to the idea of hitting the mark, I think it'll be helpful to clarify one example of sin's anti-godness, especially because it has implications for how people approach and discuss politics. I don't want to be controversial here, but I do want to respond to a trend that I'm noticing at the moment, and maybe you've noticed it too. One clear example of sin's anti-godness is in our frequent obsessions with political systems. Keep in mind, again, that when there is no ultimate ground to our being and to our being good, we start creating our own ground. We find a foundation of sorts, even if it is imperfect. We make our own immortality systems to convince ourselves that the problem is out there somewhere in the world rather than in here in us. Some of my friends tell me, for instance, that the answer to all of the world's problems is some form of capitalism and others say that what we need instead of capitalism is socialism and I think, well, certainly we should entertain both ideas it's good not to dismiss anything without having properly thought about it and properly understood it. I've already mentioned the idea that we should not judge before we have understood. But whatever we think about, whatever system we concoct, we should think about it with an awareness of this human propensity to muck things up, and especially the human propensity to muck things up by creating counterfeit gods out of systems. Capitalism no matter what form it takes, will not save anyone. And the same is true of socialism. Socialism will not save anyone. If you pin your hopes on systems like that, whichever way you happen to conceive of them, you are in for a nasty surprise. T.S. Eliot once described the current human project as that of trying to create or find a system of order so perfect that we will not even have to be good. And of course, as even Jesus hinted, any number of systems, although certainly not all of them, will work pretty well if we are genuinely good. So here's a really controversial idea, I think capitalism would be brilliant if people were perfect. Or, here's another controversial idea, socialism would be totally wonderful if people were perfect. The only trouble is, we're not perfect. The fatal flaw in the systems we concoct is that we're the ones concocting them. Systems will never solve the problem of sin. In fact, it is arguably because of the impotence of systems against sin that we can get a really real sense of the validity of Christ and Christianity for a messed up world with screwed up people. So the deal is this. Our job is to get sin sorted out, first and foremost, and this will be an ongoing project. It's not to point out the sin in others or to try and fix the world when we haven't even learned to live our own private lives properly. Rather, we need to be examples of what it means to sort ourselves out. If you're an addict, for instance, a greater sin than being an addict is the sin of not admitting it and working on it. I know, of course, this gets very complicated. We all live terribly complicated lives, and for most of us, Our beliefs are bound up in our unbelief. But in the end, the point I've been making remains, we miss the mark, all of us. No one is exempt. As the writer Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Paul, in saying this, is also telling us something that is often missed. The point is not morality per se or merely getting right what you get wrong. The point is God. Morality, or what we usually talk about as being a good person, just happens to be one of the primary ways that the weight of the ultimate is disclosed to us. The problem with being immoral then is largely that it obscures our vision. It renders us spiritual zombies who don't know that there are zombies in need of a cure. So I just have one suggestion to make with regard to hitting the mark, and I'm sure other suggestions can be offered but it's worth giving this a shot. Try like crazy to live a better life. Look at really good standards by which you can live your life and try to live by them. Not your own standards, but ones that have guided the ancients. I think Jesus's ethics is probably the best option for us because in this respect, it places greater demands on us than any other option. So for instance, it's not about not committing adultery but about not even thinking of weaving adulterous thoughts into our minds. It's not about not murdering either but about not even allowing ourselves to hate and so on. The way of Jesus is really really difficult if not impossible in its demands and that is a good thing. Try to live up to it genuinely with all your might and don't back down from it either even when the going gets tough. Even if God is dead for you, let the full force of knowing that nothing is permitted weigh down on you. Become a moralist or, if you like, a Pharisee. Of course, one of the greatest tricks of the human propensity to muck things up is that a voice might sort of pop up in your head that says, this doesn't matter, don't worry about trying to be better than you are. Or maybe it says that God doesn't mind how good you are. This often takes the form of a kind of psychoanalytic trick encouraged by people like Freud and Lacan. Instead of calling sin out, just relabel things as indifferent or as preferences or as not so bad. You get rid of the ideal so that you don't have to feel terribly persecuted by it. The trouble is, we need the ideal to disclose reality to us. We need to have a law before which we can falter and fumble. And then... As the ideal discloses the real to us, we'll get a glimpse of something more, and we'll see that the mark we really need to hit is not the rules that we need to follow. Our righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees, as Jesus taught. The mark we need to hit is God. But we cannot get to God's perfection by our own will. We cannot save ourselves or reach divinity on our own steam. Sin in us will find a way to usurp and corrupt even the good we do. Well, I know that salvation is a complex theological topic on its own, but the general idea is this. If we can't save ourselves, the truth, to quote Heidegger, is that only a God can save us. More specifically, only goodness itself can save us, and that, as the biblical narrative suggests, is precisely what has happened. When human beings miss the mark, God makes sure to be the one hitting it. Well, so to speak, because he is it. Various early Christian writers formulated this idea in different ways, via different images and metaphors and theological constructions. But the ultimate message was the same. Where we are unfaithful, the truest fullness of reality that is God remains faithful. And our job is to simply respond to this by surrendering to goodness itself. See the whole world, including all the rules you can't comply with, as a stained glass window in a cathedral pointing to the light beyond it. The early Christians referred to the surrender as faith, or trust, and this trust involves letting go of your attempts to save yourself. It means in a very real way giving up. The lesson in all of this is that we can't be good on our own, so we'd do very, very well to ask for help. Admit your sin, confess it, tell God you're a flop and a failure. Tell him you can't even tell the difference between him and your inner critic or between him and the cultural norms that are floating around. And then ask those who care about you for help too. We are all in this mess together. We are all messes in this together. And admitting that is a powerful thing. We are the mess, but somehow we may also be part of the way out of it. There's a surprise in all of this. You think that the result would be that when you let go completely, that your life will go completely awry, that you'll become merely a passive observer to the goodness of God. But what actually happens is the opposite. Because attuning yourself to true north, so to speak, transforms your entire perception. You suddenly know with immense clarity that you are not the originator of your own goodness. In fact, the more you assume that you are the origin of your own goodness, the more impossible it becomes to be good. And your actions will be transformed along with that. You start wanting to do good and your own hitting the mark is quite miraculously improved. Instead of merely trying to do good, you find yourself actually doing good. There is a freedom in this that I will struggle to describe. You don't feel like doing the right thing is all that difficult. It becomes easy. I know, of course, there are ways to slip back into old patterns and into, you know, mucking up more than you want to. But the redemption is offered to us constantly. The more I look at it, this only makes sense and only works when our trust in the ultimate is complete. What we tend to do, at least what I tend to do and what I suspect some of you do, is we tend to think that God only wants certain parts of us, when the truth is that he wants the whole of us the way that a lover wants his beloved. Put differently, he doesn't want us to let him love us partially, but to let him love us completely. We are loved into existence and by the same love that gives us being, we are redeemed into a fuller life of deeper meaning. And it is this love that calls to us and reminds us that we can be whole. I know there are all kinds of answers to the problem of evil, ways to address corruption inside all of us. Some of those ways mitigate the problem a little or cover it up, but are never more than partial solutions that never quite manage to kill the weed at the root. And while it seems to me that as old-fashioned as it all sounds, the only real solution would be to genuinely, with our whole being, trust in and surrender to that unwavering transcendent goodness that is the source of our own being. If you've been hanging on for dear life to one or another ideal, letting go and giving in to this trust may feel like falling for a short while. But soon enough, you'll know that you've actually taken flight. And that is what I have to say for now. Maybe it's too much or not enough, but I hope some of it struck a chord and that you'll ponder the details in terms of your own journey and your own perspective as you walk on. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. And thank you very much to all of those who do support me either in money or in good thoughts or in prayers. I appreciate you more than I can say. Until next time. Cheers.